Let's read the word of the Lord, verse 13, 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized into the name of Paul? I am thankful that I did not baptize any of you except Crispus and Gaius, so no one can say that you were baptized into my name. Yes, I also baptized the household of Stephanas. Beyond that, I don't remember if I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with words of human wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Thanks be to God for his word. Let's bow together. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full into his wonderful face. And the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his, of his glory and grace. In the morning when I rise, in the morning when I rise, in the morning when I rise, give me Jesus. Give me Jesus. Give me Jesus. You can have all this world, but give me Jesus. Amen. Paul's appeal to God's church in Corinth was an appeal in Christ's name for complete unity. That's verse 10a. Do you see it there? That you may all agree. Verse 10b, perfectly united in mind and thought. In other words, that means to be in the same mind, to be in, uh, in and of the mind of Christ uh, if there's going to be any hope for genuine, lasting unity. He was, in essence, begging them in Christ's name to be united. That's what we learned last time. I appeal to you. Translated in other translations, I am begging you. I beg you in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ that you all may agree and be in and of Christ's mind. So Paul, as an apostle, the, the highest of a human authoritative representative of the Lord Jesus Christ on the earth, Paul takes the lowest road, I beg you, but appeals in the highest name. The name that is above every name, the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And isn't it safe to say that a child of God with a sound mind and a tender conscience would do anything, would do anything for the sake of Jesus Christ? At least you would think so. And of course, this is a quite refreshing way, a straightforward way, a quite beautiful way to appeal to an ugly behaving church. So remember, he, we said that his appeal, appeal was comprehensive. Everyone agrees. No one in the church is exempt from this. And then his appeal was very clear. Our unity is grounded in the gospel. We stay on that gospel line. Things having to do with the essentials of the faith. Things tied to the work of Christ on the cross. That is to be the basis of our unity and nothing more. Because in the gospel, unity is built in. And so Paul's appeal was comprehensive. Everyone, it was very clear. Stay on that gospel line. And his appeal was absolutely beautiful. It was for complete unity. In which he said that the church in Corinth, just like the church in Cohasset or the church everywhere, was, was to reduce themselves to order. In other words, cut yourself from your personal convictions or your personal taste or even imagine truth which are not tied to the work of Christ on the cross so that unity may flourish. 
And of course, Paul is making his appeal to a church that is just swimming in a kind of groupy type mentality. And uh, people, verse 11, from Chloe's household, essentially they tattletold. And they said to Paul that, uh, that there is, in the one place that there should not be, there's quarreling, there's bickering, arguing. And can you believe it, Paul? It's, it's in God's church. God's people are arguing. Now, can you imagine God the Father and God the Son arguing? Of course you can't. Why not? Because they are one. And so it is, with all God's genuine people, we are one in and only in Christ. However, each group in Corinth, having their own man-centered heroes, and they have a kind of unhealthy, unbalanced emphasis on either one aspect of the faith or an imagined or self-created aspect of the faith, hence the names there in verse 12. And it reveals to Paul quite clearly that the church in Corinth have taken their eyes off Jesus Christ. That's the problem. They have put their eyes on men, and they have put their eyes off of, if you would, Jesus Christ. So because this church has, has created division out of their unity, Paul then sets himself to the task of bringing unity out of their division. Now how would one do that? How would you do that? Well, let's learn from the apostle. Let's learn from God's word. Verses 13 through 16, Paul begins to lay down this principle because it's very clear that the source of their disunity or any disunity at all in the church is when we take our eyes off of Christ. The source of all disunity in the church is when when the church takes their eyes off Christ and puts them on someone else or something else or themselves. The medicine then for the problem of taking our eyes off of Christ is for have to, is to, is to put our eyes back on Christ. And that's exactly what Paul does. And that takes us to our first point. If you have a worship folder, you can turn to the back there. And the first point is Paul's three questions. Is Christ divided? Was, was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized into the name of Paul? And if Paul was writing in our day, maybe he could have easily written in something like this to this to this uh, quarreling Christian church with a kind of groupie type leanings. Was Billy Graham crucified for you? Were you baptized into the name of Beth Moore? Was John Stott or John Calvin hanging on the cross for you? And of course, of course those are rhetorical questions. They, they were meant to have a decisive answer. Of course not. Of course not. So Paul's first question, is Christ divided? Or more literally, has Christ been parceled out? Because that is the, the sense of the verb that Paul uses and the tense that Paul writes in. And so what he's saying is, are there bits and pieces of Christ in your group? And then are there bits and pieces of Christ in their group? So that, that, that Christ is split up into bits and pieces? Of course not. Because if there's bits and, bits and pieces of Christ in your group, and if there's bits and pieces of Christ in their group, then you don't have any of Christ at all. Because if you genuinely have Christ... One never has him in bits and pieces because he only comes as a whole. All of him loves all of us and all of him is given to all of us if we really belong to him. So the church in Corinth, Paul is saying to you, you may be fragmented, but you should know that Jesus Christ is not fragmented. He has never been fragmented as Jesus Christ therefore is the lasting bond in everything. Let's just think this out. That Jesus is the glue between a husband and a wife. 
Jesus is the glue between parents and kids, between members of God's church, between church fellowships and church families. Jesus is the basis for genuine unity because only Jesus unites all races and faces. Only Jesus unites the rich and the poor, the bright and the not so bright. Uh, There was no homogeneous mechanism in the early church. Oh, why should we come to Jesus? Well, gosh, we're all the same. No, they were different. They were slave and free. They were rich and poor, Jew and Gentile. So the whole world had to put their eyes on the church, in essence, put their eyes on Christ because something different was happening in the church. And anything... Anything that is part and parcel of disharmony and disunity cannot be tracked back to Christ since Christ is not divided. Christ is not causing the the schemata here. He's not making the the cut in, in the church. Incidentally, I learned this this week. This truth kind of throws light on the idea of wanting more of Jesus or more of the Holy Spirit. We understand why people say that, but perhaps a better way to say it is I need to allow Christ to have more of me or I must allow the Holy Spirit to have more of me because we are the ones Christ is making whole. He comes to us whole. So that's Paul's first question. Is, is Christ divided? Does he, come, does he come in bits and pieces so that we may cut and paste him as we like? Well, clearly the answer is no. The second question, which argues against disunity, still in verse 13, was Paul crucified for you? And clearly Paul wasn't. I mean, it wasn't by accident that Andrew and, and, and uh, Peter, or Peter and Paul, by secondary sources, when they were put to death for the sake of Christ, they were more than likely crucified upside down. Do you know what they were saying? We are us, but we're not him. Was Paul crucified for you? And clearly he wasn't. And listen carefully. Paul is pleading with them using theology. He's not trying to to negotiate peace to their disunity for them to drop their personality cults. And so what Paul does is he takes them uh, down the journey of memory lane. Hey, Corinthian church, remember when I came to you way back when? I came in weakness and I came in fear. I was scared half to death. How, however, I resolved, 1 Corinthians 2, 2, nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. That's all I said to you the whole time. So, so church, you owe everything to Jesus. Jesus died for your sins. Jesus forgave you and Jesus cleansed you. Jesus is standing in your place. Jesus is interceding on your behalf right now. Jesus is coming forward for you. Jesus is feeding you. Jesus is sanctifying you. Jesus is coming back for you soon. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. And not Paul, Paul, Paul. Or Peter, 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 who, or whoever is the next uh, superstar coming down the pike in Christianity. You see, I've developed a habit. It's one of the few things I like about myself. But whenever, <laughs> I think, good, you know why? Good. <laughs> whenever I listen to talks or sermons or devotions on the web or on the radio or just in a sitting, I count on my hands the number of times I hear the name of Jesus. And frankly, sometimes... He's barely mentioned. And it breaks my heart because Jesus is the only answer to everything. You see, loved ones, whenever a Christian begins to give their allegiance to to a human personality, including ourselves, we have taken our eyes off of Jesus. Therefore, Paul is just laying down this essential, essential principle. Please listen carefully. Jesus is the only one who can unite people. And he has done so definitively in the cross. 
Again, Jesus is the only one that can unite people, and he has done so definitively in the cross. His cross, which says our sins are horrible, and he's a merciful Savior. And by his death, he has paid a debt that we can never pay back on our own. Therefore, all, all, everyone is equal at the foot of the cross. Therefore, Jesus is the one who unites the church. Jesus is ultimately the significant uh, one when we gather Jesus is ruler, sovereign, guide, example, the power. Jesus is reality. Jesus is everything. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. And Jesus, listen carefully, Jesus makes church, church. And whenever a church takes her gaze off of Jesus, then that church loses everything. Early Friday morning. Very early Friday morning, my wife sent me a text with the words from Psalm 16, 8. And she didn't know that I was going to preach this talk today. And this is what she sent me from Psalm 16, 8. I keep my eyes always on the Lord. With him at my right hand, I will not be shaken. This is fantastic. Now listen carefully. One of the reasons why Paul mentions this is that later on in chapter 3... In Corinthians, he's going to lay down another principle. Okay, principle number one, Jesus is the only one who can unite people, and he does so definitively in the cross. Principle number two, the inherent penalty in disunity is always immaturity. I'm going to say it again. The inherent penalty in disunity will always be immaturity. So, so Disunity is always an indication of mature, immature people. In other words, it's the kids that always squabble, right? It's the kids that always fight. Hopefully, the older we get, the more we understand, the less there is to fight about. At least it should be that way. So just listen to your Bible. This is 1 Corinthians 3, the first three or four verses there. Brothers and sisters, I couldn't address you as people who are spiritual, but people who are still worldly, mere infants in Christ, I gave you milk, not solid food. So you want to say, well, why, Paul? Why did you do that? For you are not ready for it. Indeed, you're still not ready. You're still worldly. For since there is jealousy and quarreling among you, are you not worldly? Are you not acting like mere humans? For when one says, I follow Paul, another, I follow Apostle, Apollos, are you not mere humans? Immaturity. Immaturity is always an indication of disunity, and disunity is always an indication of, of immaturity. So when I was a child, before we had moved into a particular house, there were a group of boys, uh, three of us left. There's six boys in my family total, two girls total, eight total. There was three boys left and two girls left, and we were all negotiating, fighting over who's going to get their own room. Well, Myself, through a series of deception and bribery and shenanigans, you know. Oh, mother, I love you. You're so wonderful. Oh, father, you're so terrific. Now give me my own room. Well, through all that hoodwinking, I got my own room. But somewhere along the line, this is what pride does to you. I, I forgot that I was afraid of the dark. <laughs> and can you imagine how embarrassing it is at 14 years old? No, I was kidding. So you know what I did? I went back and renegotiated. And my brothers were smart. They made me wait about a month and a half, you know, about uh, six, 
week, seven weeks of ha oh, oh, at night in my room. And my parents didn't believe in nightlights, so we did. it was horrible. You see, that's the kind of a stuff you expect in the business office, right? Or the teacher's lounge, or the, or the political realm. Why do people split up in factions? And, and why do people do their best to scurry favor for Mrs. X or Mr. Y? Why do they cut deals and, and make arrangements? That's because it's normal in that realm. But that's abnormal. And that's distorted and twisted for this realm. And don't miss the point. Whenever a mere human gives their allegiance to a human personality because they like them or they like their style, they like their looks or how they sound, they will inevitably begin to take their eyes off of Jesus Christ. And when our eyes are off Jesus Christ, then it's guaranteed that there's going to be factions and fraying and disunity, the kind of thing which took place in the Corinthian church. And, you know, if you think about that, that explains, again, the, the, the importance of the Lord's Supper. Because at the table, all eyes are on who? They're all on Jesus. Because we come to the Lord's table as sinners redeemed by his blood. We acknowledge our sin, our disunity, and caused by our sin, and the guilt and rebellion before a holy God. And then we gratefully and joyfully and hopefully humbly celebrate the fact that Christ alone has done what we could never do for ourselves. And he forgives and he cleanses. And here's the thing. It is such a shame when the best thing and the most constant thing for a church's unity, namely the person and work of Jesus Christ, is usually the last thing that is looked to. So it goes like this. They said this, and they said that, and I don't like this, and I don't like that. And then at the end we say, well, we're all Christians, and we should be united. Can you imagine if that was reversed? Can you imagine if that was reversed and how much better and how much easier and lighter things would be if we kept our eyes on Christ and started with him in the first place? Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Paul's third argument against disunity comes in his question, were you baptized into the name of Paul? Now think with me, the significance of Paul saying this lies in baptism itself. To be baptized into the name of someone was to have one's life signed over to that person to be under their authority and to serve and obey them. In other words, uh, the Christian, when they're baptized into the name of Christ, essentially we're under contract in a most lovely way. We put our whole life in his hands and he is now Savior, yes, and Lord, yes, and baptism is a public demonstration of that reality. So then Paul puts it straightforward. When you were baptized, did you sign yourself over to me? Of course not. Now it's not uncommon for people to talk about A person who performed their baptism as if the person was more significant than the baptism itself. And of course, you know, we understand human relationships. Those things are precious. But you still have to be sensible and you still got to be careful. What then is the baptizer? That's Paul's question. What then is the baptizer? So when the Christians in Corinth were baptized... And when all of us have been baptized, we gave expression publicly to the reality that we are the full possession of Jesus Christ. That we have have signed our lives over to him and no one else. And so that takes us to our third point. Paul's three questions, every answer, Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. Paul's big idea. So you see there in verse 
verses 14 and 15. I thank God that I did not baptize any of you except Crispus and Gaius, so no one can say that you were baptized into my name. So in this, he is presupposing, presupposing their baptism. And he puts things in their proper place. Is that important? Absolutely, it's important. Baptism was not an empty ritual, but a wonderful picture of what had already taken place in their lives. Baptism was the individual displaying outwardly the work of God, which has already taken place inwardly. And now that it has taken place inwardly, what was working itself out outwardly is indicated to everyone by their public baptism in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. However, as you look at verse 17, Paul says that baptism was secondary to proclamation. Now stay with me. Clearly their unity is in Jesus. In the wholeness of who Jesus is. Clearly it was Jesus on the cross. It wasn't Peter, Paul, or Mary who was crucified for them. No. And clearly the lordship of Jesus Christ, whose name were you baptized into, is not Paul and not anyone else, but only Jesus. Making it very, very plain then that unity is found only in Christ. A picture of the Christian union with Christ is displayed in baptism. And loved ones, that is why you can never create unity on your own. You cannot create unity as a result of, a, of your de- denominational allegiance or, or kind of unification arrangements in the life of God's church. That will never happen. Let me just give you one example. In the year 2006, uh, the yearbook of American and Canadian churches came out. There were 217 denominations listed. Of the 217 listed denominations, the top 25, the largest 25, this is what you had. You ready? You had six different Baptist denominations. You had three different Methodist denominations. You had four different uh, Pentecostal denominations. You had two different Lutheran denominations. You had two different Episcopal denominations. And that is in just the top 25. You see, that's why you cannot create unity. You can't say, hey, everybody, let's rally around this document. They tried that. There was a time when there was only one Baptist denomination. And there was a time when there was only one Methodist and one Pentecostal and one Lutheran and one Episcopal and so on. But that time is no longer. So think. Think hard. We cannot create our own unity. Only Jesus Christ can. Because think about your family breakfast table. Your family, your family at home. What exists in a family is, exists as a result of either, either adoption or natural birth. So that everyone in that family knows what makes them family is the fact that they all are of the same lineage. That they're united under the same headship. And that is the same way the Bible describes the church of Jesus Christ. It has only one head. It has only one head. And that's why one of the main ways the Bible describes salvation is what? Just think for a second. What's the main way the Bible describes salvation? It's being born again. It's a new birth. Just like a family. And that's why when you try to understand this unity idea. To try to make some application of it. And yield to this principle in the life of the church. And then not be born again. It will not work. If you're not born by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, it won't work. That would be the equivalent of of running a marathon and starting the marathon at mile 18. You can't do that. You've broken the rules. It's not allowed. You can't win if you do that. Therefore, your name has to be on the list. 
And for your name to be on the runner's list, you have to be qualified. And for you to be qualified, you, in the, in the context of the church, have to be born again. So Paul is writing to people who, whose names are on the runner's list, people who are born again. And they're not qualified as a result of, of, of turning over a new leaf or all of a sudden they want to, quote, get religious or the kids are getting older and I'm getting scared. I better throw myself into church. No. They are qualified as a result of, uh, of being aware of their predicament. They, they, they get it. They're sinners. And they're sinners before a holy God and they need a savior. And only Jesus is that savior. And, and Jesus can make me born into the family of God. And the spirit of God then will be put in me. And the spirit now then lives in me. And then when we meet other family members, they unite with them. They're together. And they're together not on the basis that they're all conservative. Or they all like a quiet life in the country. Or they both lean the same way in most things. No, that won't take. No, it's a fact that the fact that they have the same father, the same father God, that's what makes them united. So the question has to be asked, right? Do you, do you have the same father God? Do we, do we have the same father God? And, and if the answer is yes, then unity is a given. Unity is guaranteed. And you see, I think that's the point. So, so if all this unity talk is, is going out and someone is sitting thinking, well, none of this stuff means anything. I, I don't give a lick about that. Then it might say, it might say that you're not part of the family of God. And it might say that you want unity, but it's going to have to be either through some worldly wisdom or you might be willing to throw your weight around to fix the thing. Because in the body of Jesus Christ, unity is a given. And you can't get into the family without being born again. That's why Jesus said, unless a man or a woman be born again, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. You, you can't get into the family of God. So the ultimate question, and listen carefully, the ultimate question for unity is this. Am I a part of the family of God through faith in Jesus Christ? That's it. And, and you should thank God for this so you don't have to, to walk around in God's house on pins and needles. Or like a Broadway actor, hello, wonderful to see you. And maybe one Sunday you don't mean it. And if you're here this morning and you're not born again, it would be an absolute privilege to see God usher you into his family no, no, longer, no, no matter how long you've been attending West Cohasset Chapel. Only Jesus is the foundation for our unity. And since only Jesus is the foundation of our unity, then we have to be mindful and we have to be skillful in avoiding everything that would attempt to destroy our unity in Jesus. And that takes us to our final point, okay? So number one, Paul's three questions. Answer, Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. Two, Paul's big idea. There is unity automatically in God's family. So enjoy your privilege. Enjoy your privilege. And then point three, Paul's main priority. Now, if, it, if it's true that there is unity automatically in the gospel so that we're part of God's family, then verse 16 and 17 uh, begin to make sense, right? So first look at verse 14. Paul says, I only 
baptize Crispus and Gaius. That's it. I, I don't want to be part of any kind of personality cult. I only baptize then. And then as you read along there, it's like someone, uh, maybe Sosthenes, his scribe, during the letter, he said, wait a minute, Paul, verse 16, uh, you baptized the whole household of Stephanus as well. It's almost like he caught him out. And Paul's like, and this is conjecture, but okay, you got me. Okay, I did, I did baptize them. And so in there, there's a little point that we need to pay attention to. Paul wasn't omniscient, was he, as an apostle? He was good, but he, but he wasn't God, right? Only God knows all things. Created things, angels, demons, the evil one, no created thing is all-knowing. Only God is. And Paul's power and significance lies in the fact of his priority and the mission that he was given. Well, Paul, what's your priority? That's verse 17. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with words of human wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of his power. So Paul is essentially saying proclamation, preaching before sacrament, right? Proclamation before sacrament. Because the fact of the matter is, if you know your Bible... Christ did send him to baptize. What's the great commission? Go into all the world, preach the gospel, making disciples, and, dis- and baptizing them. Okay, then you have to ask yourself the question, is the Bible stumbling over itself? Is Paul and Christ at odds here and, and there's something going on that we don't know? No. That's why you have to do your best to pay attention to context and then get a good sense of the whole Bible. For you see, baptisms could, could have been performed by anyone other than Paul. And Paul could have rightly delegated the, the baptism to another baptizer. Because, being, uh, because the baptizer is not the issue. The baptism is the issue. However, for Paul, preaching the gospel, preaching Christ, was the reason why he was sent. And that was the issue. Now this is, you know... Maybe a bit technical, but I, I don't think so. But this makes me uh, know that the, the apostles were very serious about this. So I'm going to give you one example from the Bible, Acts 10, and, and then one quote from J.I. Packer to kind of drive this home. Here's the example from the Bible. Peter is at the house of Cornelius. He, he's preaching the gospel to a Gentile household. And Peter says this, he says, those Jews in Jerusalem, they killed Christ by hanging him on a tree, but God raised him from the dead, and on the third day, and caused him to be seen, so believe on Christ. Presto, God moves. People were coming to faith in that household, lots of people. Peter then says, as he should, okay, they need to be baptized. And then listen to Acts chapter 10, verse 48. This is what it records for us. So he, Peter, ordered that they be baptized into the name of Jesus Christ. And you see, there you go. Peter simply steps aside. He delegates baptism and the great commission is fulfilled. You see, Peter might have known what Paul had to learn. Don't go baptizing people. Be careful because the baptizer is not the issue. The baptism is the issue. And so Peter stays on that line. So that was the Bible, now J.I. Packer. The commission was, go and make disciples of all nations and baptizing them, Matthew 28, 19. The main thing was to make disciples, recognizing them as such by baptism was subordinate, though commanded. Baptism was a work that the apostles mostly delegated to others. During the apostolic age and in the apostolic form of religion, truth stood immeasurable above external rites. The apostasy or era of the church consisted in making rights more important than truth. 
Baptism matters. However, it is unscriptural to make baptism essential to salvation. But it is nevertheless a dangerous act of disobedience to undervalue or neglect baptism. Let me just give you a translation. In other words, to guard us, right? To guard the apostles and to guard preachers, if you would. Proclamation, preaching Christ has the priority. And then to guard the people, it's very wrong if, Christian, if a Christian doesn't think they should be baptized. And what you have to do is you just read a little bit of church history to learn that whenever the church had that pattern reverse, when, when the church had rituals before proclamation, when they had a sights and sound extravaganza before the actual preaching of the, world, of the word, excuse me, you had chaos. You had uh, absolute chaos. Just go, Google the dark ages. And, and read a little about, about their worship services. And what you're going to find, sight, sound, smell, extravaganza. But they didn't preach the cross of Jesus Christ. Ritual before proclamation. Let your, let your feet tap a whole lot before your mind is stirred. You let your heart feel it, but just chunk the brain. So if you ever come to one of our summer baptism services in one of those, those cold lakes, we just don't jump right into the water. If you've been there, you'll know we do this. Two things. Number one, the personal testimony of how the soon-to-be-baptized Christian came to faith in Jesus Christ. An amazing privilege to hear people give their testimony. And the second thing that you will hear is this. And actually, I'm just going to read it to you. This is what you'll hear. A Christian baptism is a picture of what God alone has performed by his grace and the suffering and death of his son on the cross for our sins. Therefore, no one is baptized to become a Christian, but rather individuals are baptized because they are a Christian. The water won't wash away your sins. Only Christ's blood can do that. Therefore, God's saving grace is displayed in baptism. It's not bestowed in baptism. Jesus left the church this, this sacrament this Christian right, not because it does something to us, but rather it explains something for us and about us. It explains about us that we belong to Christ and we're going public with that information by baptism. And it explains something for us as the baptism explains the gospel. Our death as we go into the water and raised to new life as we come out of the water, a death and a resurrection united to Jesus Christ. So in a very real sense, baptism is a picture of Christ and what he has already performed by his grace. Finally, if you ask the question, why do we baptize at all? The short answer is because Jesus, who himself was baptized, and Jesus, who is our example in everything, he commanded us to. And then off we go into the ice water. You see, when ritual, when traditions come before truth, Chaos. And we're near the end. I have another question for you. Have you been baptized? Have you been baptized? Well, you say, but you, we don't have the means for that here. Well, we're working on that. But don't avoid the question. Have you been baptized? And better still, are you part of the family of God? Are you in Christ? Do, do you believe this unity talk? Do you believe that a, that a crucified 30-something-year-old man who walked this earth and said and did things that, that no one ever had or has, 
who under God put himself on the cross to die for our sin is the only Savior that can save. Uh, Do you believe that? Because if you believe that, you're in Christ. If you don't believe that, then you're not in Christ. Someone might say, well, that's the stupidest thing I've ever heard. Well, that's next time. You see in your Bibles, verse 18, for the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved. The message of the cross is what? It's God's power. It's God's power. And that's why God always says in the word, now is the day of salvation. Now is the day to repent and believe the good news. Thank you for your attention. Let's bow and pray. Well, gracious God and Father, we thank you that in the gospel gift, it is truly a gift that keeps on giving and giving and giving and giving in, in unique ways and in very plain ways. And thank you, God, in eternal ways. And so we pray that our minds and our eyes would just be placed back on Jesus firmly, completely for his glory. Now may the love of God and the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be ours both now and forevermore. Amen.